Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Good morning, Lisa, and welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, episode 69. Good morning, Melissa. I am really excited because in addition to having a great guest today, we are talking about our next Compassion Challenge. In fact, the very first Compassion Challenge of 2020. I love heading into a Compassion Challenge because this is really an area where a lot of moms feel so discouraged. And we built the Compassion Challenge for moms who maybe are having trouble finding the like for their kids. You know, they know they love them, but it might be really hard to be around them, might be hard to like them. And we didn't know a lot about why this was for years. And so both Lisa and I have experienced this and then consequently felt pretty guilty about it. Right. I think there's so much shame around this. You know, moms are like, this is not how I should be feeling. Um, I must be a terrible person. This is a child. I'm the adult. I chose this. There are all these things. And we feel like, wow, I could never tell anybody how I actually feel. And what we found is that when we get together and we learn about this and talk about it, people really do regain hope and compassion for themselves and their kids. Yeah, absolutely. And there's words for these things. And of course, as Dan Siegel tells us, when we name it, we tame it. So this is a free three-day training on blocked trust and blocked care. And we'll tell you during the Compassion Challenge exactly what those are, um, what to do about them. And when I say three-day training, this isn't like an all-day thing. These are three days of super short videos because we know you guys are very, very busy. They're all, I think, under 10 minutes, but it will help you understand why your child might be pushing you away, why you're not a bad mom because you're losing your patience. And really, we want you to be able to shed those feelings of shame and guilt. Absolutely. And there is brain science behind why it's so hard to keep caring. And we're going to share that with you too. We would love for you to join us. You can get more information and sign up on our website at theadoptionconnection.com slash compassion. Absolutely. And so we're really looking forward to hanging out with you guys for those three days. That challenge starts on Tuesday, February 11th. So tell us a little bit about our guest for today and what we're going to be hearing about. So I interviewed a local new friend of mine. Her name is Kathy Stone. And she is actually, she has been in recovery for 34 years. And she has continued to stay in the space of mentoring people and offering guidance to families who have been touched by addiction. I know that this is not a happy, cheery topic, but the reality is, is that unfortunately, some of our kids, especially our older kids, have are in the world of addiction and some of our kids who came to us through foster care or adoption may have birth parents who struggle with addiction. And so I just thought it was a timely and relevant topic to kind of explore a little bit into uh, and bring you guys just some firsthand knowledge of Kathy's story and her journey and the wisdom that she has to share out of, you know, decades of being in recovery. 
The more we know and understand, the more we can be compassionate and make wise choices for our kids and for ourselves. So let's hear the interview. Kathy, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm excited to have you here. Addiction is unfortunately a hot topic in the adoption world, especially for families who are raising kids who are now older, or maybe they adopted them as older children. And then also a lot of our kids came through the foster care system and may have been removed from their families because their parents struggle with addiction. Uh, So I know that your wisdom will be super important to our community. Uh, Will you just tell us how you got interested or started in this addiction recovery work? Well, I actually had some drug and alcohol problems when I was really young. I started when I was about 15 years old and I also had a couple, you know, eating disorders. So I had a lot of struggles as a young person, just, uh, you know, getting along well and fitting in and just a lot of struggles. And I, it just progressed really fast in me. I start by the time I was 22 years old, I was drinking every day. I was smoking cigarette, a pack of cigarettes a day. I was throwing up four or five times a day with my bulimia. And it just got really, really bad. So I was able to, the way my parents handled it actually was they just did a really great job because they just told me that they were done and that they couldn't live like this anymore and that they had sent me to college and they had given me everything that I needed, but that I needed to be on my own because after college I had come home and I wasn't working and I was making a mess in the house and I was going out partying all the time and they were just done. And they pretty much told me that I could stay in the house, but I needed to get my act together, go to work. And if there was any slip ups that I was out. And it just, them drawing that line for me, I knew that the gig was up basically and that I had to get my act together and I started seeking help and I quit drinking and I quit my bulimia and I've been in recovery, um, alcohol-free and drug-free for almost 34 years. Wow, that is so amazing. What I know the path out and to towards recovery is different for everyone, but what did that look like for you? Did they help you find services? Like did it take was it I mean you say it like it was so easy. Like I just quit. I just gave it up. But, <laughs> you know, I'm sure it was much harder than that. Like how long did it take? I know that we have parents who are facing these really hard decisions. Like do I st- stay connected with my child or do I need to set a more firm boundary and do they even have the skills necessary to figure that out, to figure out how to get to the point of recovery? So kind of what did that look like for you? Well, my parents, yeah, they did start, we started seeking help from psychiatrists and doctors, because we didn't really know what was wrong with me. It was a long time ago. And on the outside, I looked good. I 
uh, had just graduated from college. I was in a sorority. I got pretty halfway decent grades. And they really thought that my problem was that I didn't have a job. So I finally got a job with a, back then it was a big eight accounting firm. And I was supposed to go to work and I was just too sick to go to work. I, I had to call in sick my first day because I was just too sick. And so that was a sign that it wasn't the job that was my problem and that there was something seriously wrong with me, but they couldn't really figure out what it was because I, I hid it and it, there was just, there was some denial about it. They just didn't really see the alcohol or just all the things I was doing as really making me, um, you know, not being able to take care of myself, unmotivated, depressed. So they started taking me to some psychiatrists and they put me on a lot of medication and, and different things like that. And then I pretty much figured out when it all kind of came to a head because uh, I ran into an ex-boyfriend at a bar and he was with another woman and I was really, it just really hit me hard. And, you know, at that point, my parents were just like fed up. So it was, yeah, they drew that line with me and I had gotten another job at the time and they basically, and I wouldn't recommend this, but they, they wouldn't really let me go to treat. Well, I shouldn't say they wouldn't let me go to treatment, but I just started going to 12 step meetings and getting help there. And I had to go to work. Um, I had just gotten a job. And so I started going to work and I just went to work every day and it was rough. It was rough. And I was under a doctor's care for a while cause I had some withdrawal and everything, but I went to work every day and it was not fun, but eventually, you know, things started getting better and I, you know, started feeling better and it was, it was, I was really grateful. Um, and then nine months later I moved out of the house. My dad helped me co-sign for a car and, I moved out and I never went back and I never asked my parents for another dime. Wow. That's incredible. So you said that there was some denial and that you were hiding some things and they didn't even really kind of know what the full extent of what you, how you were struggling. What are signs of addiction that parents can look for? Cause a lot of our kids are kind of sneaky and you know, they kind of, they may be looking good on the outside, but they may have a lot of other challenging behaviors. They may be hiding some kind of addiction. What can we be looking for? What are kind of the classic signs? Yeah. Any kind of irresponsible behavior, just not following through on things, not really being able to like keep a job or, or, you know, go to school or some depression, um, just any kind of secrecy or lying or any kind of compulsive behaviors that you're noticing. I had a lot of compulsive behaviors with food and my parents didn't really pay attention to it. Like they knew I was throwing up, but they were just, they were like, well, just you, you shouldn't be doing that. And that was a, a, a big sign. And that was when I was like, 15 and 16. And that was a big sign back then that I needed help. And 
and then I started smoking cigarettes. So any kind of vaping, I know a lot of the kids are vaping right now. Any kind of like, a, you know, addiction using any kind of substance is just a gateway to um, picking up other substances, drinking, you know, going to parties. And I know this is like most of the kids today, but I think what happens is parents just, they think it's normal, but it, it's definitely, you have to be really careful because it's, especially for young people that are drinking, it really affects their brain chemistry. And it also keeps you from you, your inhibitions go down. So nowadays, you know, they have these pills and you never know your inhibition go down, goes down with drinking. So then you take a pill and, and you, something really bad could happen. So, uh, but any kind of like secrecy, lying, just angry outbursts, um, just any kind of behavior change, any compulsive behaviors, those are big signs of addiction. Yeah. So a lot of our kids have a lot of that stuff anyway, just from the trauma in their life. If you even went back before your addiction, were there signs of like stress or other things? Like if you don't mind sharing, what were the things that drew you to addiction? Like, were you trying to numb a pain or deal with a stress or like are the things even before the addiction starts like signs of high stress or other things that make it more likely that someone would turn to addiction as a kind of self-medication? Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me is that I didn't know how to handle my emotions and everything was a drama. So I didn't know how to handle it. If you know, someone didn't like me at school or I just was very sensitive. I took everything personally. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to have relationships with people or be a friend. And I was always like trying to get people's approval or, and I think that I just, um, and I, I struggled getting along with people and I wanted attention. I was very attention seeking and I just, I didn't know how to be in myself. I was a little eight. I was ADD basically. <laughs> I didn't know how to, be with myself and be calm and just understand my emotions and just realize that learn how to like myself. I think that they teach, you know, kids, they teach us math and English and science, but they don't really teach us like how to love ourselves or just take care of ourselves and be with ourselves. And, and then we go to food or alcohol, maybe for some comfort or to fit in. But what happens is it really doesn't provide the comfort because we're not really taught like how to deal with our emotions. And then we go to something that doesn't really comfort us or we think it comforts us. But basically what we're doing is we're just, once we start in that process, we're, we, we crave it because we're addicted to it. So with like the vaping, you know, cause I smoked a pack of cigarettes today and you know, once I started smoking and nicotine kind of goes out of your system pretty quick. So you have to keep smoking the cigarettes, but I used, you know, nicotine, but it really wasn't, it wasn't helping my stress. It was making me more stressed. It was just, the nicotine was just relieving the withdrawal symptoms, if that makes sense. Hmm. So I think with the, our culture and the amount of advertising, 
that we get bombarded with, we get these messages from a very young age and we really believe that, oh, well, I'll smoke to be cool. And then that's how I'll stay thin. And it's just all a lie. And it just, it sort of sucks you in this trap. And once you're in the trap, you, you're basically addicted. And then it's just getting your fix because of your physical craving for the substance, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. So if a parent suspects that their child is addicted, especially to substances, what's the best way to approach that? I mean, honest, you know, obviously if you just come right out and say, are you drinking, smoking, whatever, are you addicted? I'm sure people say no, they deny it all the time. Um, Some of our kids are already prone to kind of aggressive or violent behavior. And so when parents start to poke and prod and ask questions, they feel really resentful towards that. And that can kind of provoke them to anger. So what would you say to a parent who fears that their child is struggling with addiction? What would, what's the next step? I think that they can have a conversation with them. What I think what's important is that they notice the behavior of what's happening and they take notes. So when they see something that, that they're concerned about, that they keep a log of everything that they might be concerned about and then, you know, set up a time to have a conversation with them about it and say, you know, and and acknowledge them, you know, acknowledge them that, that you really care about them and that you've been noticing. So you heard some things I've been noticing. What do you think? And, and see how they respond. And if they get defensive, they're probably, it's not, you don't want to get in an argument with them. You just want to stay strong about what you see. Because if they're in the addiction cycle, it's going to be really hard for them to admit it because that's just the nature of addiction. It just, you lie about it. So you have to be um, just, but that kind of confronts it to them. It sort of puts it in their court. Like, oh, I've noticed you you know, skip school for like the last couple weeks, you know, a couple days here and there, or I noticed that you have been isolating or whatever it is, or you came home and your eyes were watery or you smelled like pot or, you know, whatever it is, you just want to talk to them and, you know, see what they say and then say, well, you know, if there's something that you don't feel comfortable with, then you know, you might have to set a boundary or use leverage, or you may have to do, if you're really concerned, you might have to do an intervention and you may have to get them in, you know, to some kind of treatment or, or something, um, an intervention, you could hire someone to come in and, and do a, like a non-threatening confrontation with them and, uh, you know, get them some help because once the addiction takes over the brain, it's just like, self will run riot. It's just like, they're not in control of themselves. And so it's just, they don't. So as a parent, I think you have to be strong and really make the decision that, you know, the child needs, needs help before it gets way too out of hand. And I think that that's why things are so crazy now is because it's just, they don't catch it early enough. And then it's just, it gets complete. It's completely out of hand. It's like, 
you know, getting, getting cancer and you're, you're dealing with it when it's stage four, instead of dealing with it when, when it's stage one. So if you can catch it early and not minimize it, I think that's a, that's the problem is that people minimize it and that can really help before it gets too bad. Yeah, that's really good. I think we spend a lot of time because we start, we live with such big challenges that we do start minimizing it kind of as a self coping mechanism. But then sometimes that is the biggest barrier to allowing ourselves to get help. It's kind of like the frog in boiling water, right? Like you don't know that you're like almost cooked (laughs) until you're Uh almost cooked. Right. Um, When we first chatted, um, you mentioned something about nonviolent communication. Can you talk a little bit about just what that is and why it's important? Well, nonviolent communication is just about, you know, having compassion and not reacting to the situation and just trying to see the person for where they are at and what might be going on with them instead of reacting to something that they're doing or, or that you feel like they're doing to you, try to look at what might they, what might be going on with them. And for addiction, I think it's so important to have compassion that, that people with addiction problems have a lot of emotional pain and they are desperate. They feel a desperation inside of themselves and they are crying out for help. And those are all things that I felt like when I was struggling and I didn't even know it, but that's how I was. So I think that if you can have compassion and learn to deal with them in a less violent way, well, so violent way would be like yelling and screaming and nagging and be more calm and really, you know, treat them like a person and not judge them and not lash out in anger, you're going to be able to, um, you know, get a lot further with them uh, because you just have to have, like I said, you have to have compassion for them and not react and just really understand the nature of, of, of the beast, basically. Yeah. We talk here at the Adoption Connection a lot about, you know, we do some of our worst parenting out of fear because that means that our own brains fight, flight, and freeze systems are triggered. And that tends to be when we use that kind of more violent or aggressive communication, our fear center kicks in, you know, maybe we find some kind of paraphernalia in our kid's room. And instead of like taking the time to thoughtfully respond, doing exactly what you're talking about, having compassion, kind of giving our kids the benefit of the doubt, we react very quickly, which just in itself, that quickness of the reaction, the swiftness and the way that we approach it, because our kids are so fragile because of their trauma, that's often registered in their own bodies as something that needs a fight, flight or freeze reaction. And so it kind of escalates from there. So I can appreciate, and even what you were saying about logging behaviors and kind of having like your ducks in a row before you uh, approach your child or confront your child about this, it's a completely different mindset and approach than, you know, kind of reacting very quickly because you heard something or you found something. I appreciate that. What are some of the ways we can love someone who struggles with addiction without enabling them? Well, I think the most important thing is, is that you have to believe in them and just really empower them rather than rescue them. 
So I know that it seems like a lot of parents have these, they want to have like this best friend relationship with their kids and they want to um, be there for them and rescue them. And, And you just can't do that with addiction. You have to really, you have to not worry whether your kid is gonna like you or not. And you have to be strong and you have to draw lines because they will manipulate and lie and tell you a story that you'll, that you'll, you'll believe and you cannot believe their stories. You have to believe in them. You have to set boundaries with them and you have to believe in them and their ability to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have someone that's struggling or that, you know, can't pay their, their cell phone bill, this might be an older child and, they're drinking um you're you can't pay the cell phone bill for them you know you have to say i know that you're gonna find resources within you to pay this bill and to figure this out i know you can do it and i just think it's so important that love is not about you know bailing them out and giving in it's about just helping them become more responsible and face their, you know, have their consequences for what they, what they do. And for example, like if they wreck a car, they need to face the consequences of that. And whether it's pay for their own insurance or they, or pay for the deductible, they just have to have some kind of consequences because if we don't give them consequences, they're not going to learn and they're just going to keep, running over you basically like a steamroller yeah so well the beauty of a lot of these things is there's kind of natural built-in consequences right there really are deductibles to pay if you wreck your car and insurance premiums that go up Um, and there's a balance we call it high nurture high structure here about the structure of that right we don't bail them out like you said but uh when you talked about compassion but we can still acknowledge, you know, how hard that is, how much it stinks to have, you know, wrecked your car, lost your car, all of those things. I think sometimes we kind of have one or the other, right? Like we tell them that they need to pay for the thing that they destroyed, but then we have very little sympathy about, you know, how they're feeling about it because we're just so frustrated about the behaviors that got them to where they are, but not showing a little bit of compassion about how hard this is for them as well can create more distance in the relationship. Um, and we kind of lose some of that relationship capital, um, to help speak into their lives and help them, you know, get the help that they need. What are some of the ways that you have seen that are most effective to help break an addiction cycle? What are the most effective forms of treatment? I know you mentioned 12 step programs, but you also mentioned like more intensive recovery and treatment options. If you were talking to a family who was kind of at the cusp of figuring this out, what words of wisdom would you share about where to find the best help? Yeah, that's a great question. And I wanted to talk to you about the empathy part that you had mentioned too, because I think that is really, really important is that you, you have empathy and you say, yeah, this is hard, but I understand this is hard, but I know you can figure this out, you know, just empathy, but really just believing in them and empowering them to um, take responsibility and ask them, you know, what they learned from it and what they could do different next time. 
And as far as like treatment options, I think that um, the best thing to do is to get in touch with, uh, you know, a therapist or a coach that specializes in addictions that understands it and to find out like where it just, I guess it depends on where they're at and what they might need. So they might need to go to a counselor. Um, they might need to, um, they may need to go to a 12 step program. Um, they may need to just, you know, read a book or there's all kinds of, um, it just, I guess it just depends on like where they, when, where they're at. Yeah. And then, treatment I think is definitely an option and I've seen people go to treatment when they were like 15 16 17 years old and it's actually and some of the young people I know that went at young ages have just done amazing things with their lives it's it's really truly amazing and that's one of the benefits of being in in recovery for for so long is I've just seen so many lives transformed. I've seen a lot of sadness, but I have seen when people get help early, they can really thrive because like I said, they don't always know what's wrong with them and they're just trying to conform to what everybody else is doing. And you get lost in that because there's, like I said, there's, it's in our culture that this is what we do. We, we drink, we experiment and all this stuff. And it doesn't have to be that way. So kind of from a different angle, for those of us who have children who may still be in contact with birth family, they may have visits, uh, maybe they're in the foster care system, so they're kind of maybe coming in and out of care, and their parents are struggling with addiction, um, and we're talking, you know, younger kids. Is there good language, or do you rec- are there storybooks, or what are the best ways to kind of talk to a child whose parent is addicted? Uh, I think it's important to make sure that they um, know it's not their fault uh, because I know as kids, we tend to think that we have that if our parents aren't happy, it's because of us and, and we really try to make them be happy. And so we have to really let the kids know that it's not their fault and that they're not alone because addiction is widespread and there are so many families that are affected by it Uh, because I think sometimes they do tend to feel alone and then it, and talk about it, encourage them to talk about it. There's these seven C's um, that they have that you didn't cause it. You can't cure it. You can't control it, but you can care for yourself by communicating and by making healthy choices and by celebrating yourself. So there is a process um, with the kids, but I think it's important just to really encourage them to talk about their feelings and their emotions and see how they're handling all that because it's easy for kids to mirror their parents and you don't want them to, you know, to start, using either at a young age, because you do see that sometimes. Thanks for that. Is there anything else that you would want families to know about addiction and recovery work? I think it's just important to know just to get educated. Everybody needs to really get educated and we need to focus on ourselves and what areas of our life that we might need to change to be different because it is a, um, a family I guess they call it a family disease, but it's 
it's a, if the family system, if the family system can be different, it can really support recovery. So I think it's important for everyone to get their own support and maybe look at areas of your own life where you might need some changes and, and just really, I think it's a, when there's an, crisis like this going on, I always think, well, what are we supposed to learn from this? So I think it's important for parents to say, well, what am I supposed to learn from this? And why is this happening to me? And what, what are the lessons in this for me? Because sometimes our kids can be mirrors of what, what we need to work on in ourselves. So maybe we don't have this, this drug addiction, but what areas of our lives do we need to work on to be different? just to get educated really early because it's, it's a very tricky thing and you want to believe your child, but you, and it's hard to communicate with someone that is like, once they're in that cycle, a lot of what comes out of their mouth is not going to be the truth. So you need to be aware of that. And just, I think education is so important and get support and understand it and understand yourself, understand your own emotions and how you respond and learn about, like I said, setting boundaries, using leverage um, and just believe in them, just really believe in them and, and know that this is a challenging issue, but yet there's a lesson, there's lessons to be learned. And that if you get to the other side of this, you're going to, there's just going to be so many gifts. So it's, I know sometimes it's hard to see. I'm just talking from like my 34 years. Like if you would have asked me 34 years ago, there's just been so many gifts along this journey and just really amazing, beautiful gifts of healing and transformation. And it only takes one person. So Sometimes if the um, person, the addict isn't willing to change, if a family member changes, that can really set the whole, change the whole dynamic of the family. Yeah. And we can't control what the people around us are going to do. We can only control ourselves. I, I say that often to many, many people, and I've said it often here on the show. Kathy, your story is super inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I know it's probably still work every day to stay in recovery even after so many decades. And we appreciate your time and um, the hope that you bring. And we're really proud of you for how far you've come. It's just an incredible story. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's easy because it's just my new life. I love it. So it's awesome. So <laughs> thank you though. One of the things I really enjoyed in this interview or just found so um, helpful was her discussion right toward the end about um, children of alcoholics and addicts, including our kids who may have families of origin where the parents are struggling or, you know, all kinds of different circumstances. But I loved those seven C's that she shared with us. And I probably won't get them all right, but I remember she said, Children need to know they didn't cause it, they can't cure it, they can't control it, but what they can do is they can care for themselves by communicating, by making healthy choices for themselves, and by celebrating themselves. I just thought that was really 
well, it was kind of, it's a little bit tidy and that suits my brain pretty well, but I also just thought it was really useful and um, has applications for us too as adults. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that struck me about it. I thought, I think I need this as a mom, right? I can't control my child. I didn't cause their trauma. I can't cure it, but I can take care of myself by communicating my feelings. Right. And I would even say like finding community as one of the C's and making good choices and celebrating myself, 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 (laughs) myself, Mm -hmm. that part speaks to me because I love celebrating wins with moms and helping them see even the tiniest little wins in their lives, even things are really, really hard. So we'll have those C's in the show notes. That is so true, Melissa. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's very, very useful to think about. So if you want to chew on that a little bit more, we'll put these seven C's along with how to reach out to Kathy if you'd like more information and other resources on addiction. We'll put all of that in the show notes and you can get there by going to theadoptionconnection.com slash 69. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, You're a good mom, doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.